Welcome everybody. This is uh, Dr. Norm Tebow and I want to thank all our Three Points parents for listening. Um, I am so thrilled today to have a dear friend and colleague with me. Um, uh, Deborah Gray specializes in attachment, grief, trauma issues uh, with children and her practice nurturing attachments. Her passion is to help families develop close, satisfying relationships. A little bit about Deborah. In 2015, she received a Lifetime Achievement Award from the International Attach Organization for her contributions to the attachment field. She's core faculty for the Attachment and Trauma-Focused Therapy Program and the Portland State University Foster and Adoption Therapy Program. She is the author of the books, Attaching and Adoption, Practical Tools for Today's Parents, Nurturing Adoptions, Creating Resilience After Neglect and Trauma, Attaching with Love, Hugs and Joy. And she's a co-author of Games and Activities for Attaching with Your Child a new book for professionals, Promoting Healthy Attachments, Hands-On Techniques to Use with Your Clients, was published just a few years ago. I have to say, Deborah is a hero of mine. She's devoted her professional life to healing attachment and trauma, and I am personally so grateful for her knowledge and willingness to share. All those associated with TPC, whether you be a parent, a student, a clinician, anyone associated with TPC at one level or another have benefited from Deborah's work. I was privileged to be trained by Deborah in her attachment and trauma-focused family therapy model a few years ago in Minnesota. And she then very graciously invited me to train other professionals with her the following year in Hawaii. And what a wonderful learning experience that was. She is so intelligent, kind, and I have to say such a gentle, compassionate, has such a gentle, compassionate demeanor. She's elegant in every sense of the word, and I am so honored to call her a friend and colleague. With that, here's Deborah Gray. Well, Norm, back at you as far as <laughs> it's such a privilege to know Norm. Everyone who knows Norm feels better because he's crossed their path. Norm's knowledgeable, supports the entire field, and maintains the highest standards of excellence, not just professionally, but in collegial relationships. Oh, he's always okay. willing to pitch a hand in an endeavor that's going to take many hands. And so I was delighted to accept an invitation to talk to your families today. Thank you, Norm. Oh, thank you, Deborah. That is so kind. And there's, there's, her, there's her compassionate demeanor right there. <laughs> so we'll, we're going to jump right into this. Deborah, you, you've, involved, you've been involved in adoption at a variety of levels throughout your life. Um, you know, and, and how has your role evolved throughout the years in, in, in regards to adoption? Well, as far as my role, there was a lot of adoption in my growing up family. Mm -hmm. uh, there was informal fostering, and then there was a lot of adoption. And mm -hmm. so very early, I started to look at why did some people have such a difficult time? Why did some people find the transition into the adoptive families and through life stages so much easier? Mm -hmm. So it opened up an interest to me um, in, in trying to understand the concepts of attachment and trauma. I was fortunate enough to go to a program in graduate school that had a specialty in attachment. Mm -hmm. And so then came out and I've worked in community mental health. I worked in regional perinatal health at a regional perinatal health center uh, for uh, at-risk newborns. I've also worked in child placement and as a therapist, trainer, author. So those are some of the hats I've worn. I've also done some short-term foster care. Wow. Um, but probably what's most interesting to the people here is I've had the opportunity year in, year out, to listen to parents. And I've been able to take some of the ideas that they have that have worked, some concepts or behavioral strategies, and then pass those on to the next folks. And so that's allowed me to be a repository of over 30 years of sitting on the other side of some pretty smart people who are very motivated to do the best for their children. And I would say that's where I've learned the most. How wonderful is that? And, and, and again, we're all beneficiaries of, of you being that repository 
uh, and we're grateful for the work that you do. Um, because as you know, uh, as well as anybody, Deborah, it, it, it feels like, at least from my chair, adoptive families have been marginalized by mainstream mental health and psychology, you know, uh, developmental trauma and attachment issues are not given the same or haven't at least been given the same weight and importance as other issues. Um, and I'm so grateful that that clinicians like you shine the spotlight on these, these very important topics for our families. Yeah. I have to ask, you know, uh, uh, the, the public perception of adoption has changed throughout the years. You know, there was a time when we didn't talk about birth parents and, 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 you know, even those in the field have, have modified their perspectives on managing birth parent issues and um, open, closed adoptions, what have you. How have your views on adoption changed throughout the years? Well, first of all, adoption many years ago used to be that 90% of the children were, or of the adoptions were healthy newborns. Yeah. Or, and, and about 10% not. And there's been a flip-flop of that. And so adoption is quite a bit more complex than it used to be. Um, and so there used to be kind of a more simplistic point of view around adoption, how much openness, how much closed. Mm -hmm. And now there are just so many more issues at play. Mm -hmm. And so things like if there's prenatal exposure to alcohol and drugs, how do we configure that into development? How do we understand that? And how that might that affect uh, our birth parent contact? Mm -hmm. Something like that has to be looked at. Or if there's been trauma around the child's uh, prenatal existence or early postnatal existence, and you were trying to figure out how did that inform the child's development? What effect will that have if we decide we wanna get background information from a birth parent? We open up that trauma for the birth parent. What's mm -hmm. that going to be like for us? And so instead of a kind of one size fits all, I believe it should be closed, or I believe it should be partially open, mm -hmm. or I think we should have identifying information, or I think it should be totally open we really have to look at the individuals involved, what suits them. Mm -hmm. You know, what's really going to bring out the best in this child? And who do we have to protect? Because in some of the situations, we have to be very protective of particular individuals. You know, and so how do we do that? I think one of the big changes, um, I learned at one point that if you didn't have um, uh, some openness and adoption before adolescence, then you should wait till the child was 18. And I don't think that that's accurate information any longer. As a mm -hmm. matter of fact, the research shows that kids have as a pressure point the teen years because mm -hmm. they're trying to figure out how they're the same and the different from two sets of parents. And often they're trying to do that when they have maybe malnutrition in their background, or maybe there was domestic violence that shaped their brain in the last trimester of birth, or perhaps their brains were shaped through alcohol drug use, or maybe they had many placements, you know, and so some of these issues really influence how kids are doing moving into their adolescence. And so we have to think through you know, is this a child who's actually going to do better if we give them some correctly uh, broken down information about their birth parents, mm -hmm. helpful content about their birth parents? Will this create a more resilient self? Um, or if we're a little worried, just how much do we share when? How do we share it? in a way that's helpful for everybody. You know, so a lot of the adolescent issues, instead of having just rules, we're trying to really tailor it to the needs of individual children. Yeah, yep. And, and of course, social media is throwing a whole nother variable into the mix because we found at Three Point Center, a number of our, our students have had contact with birth parents without adoptive parents even knowing. 
through Facebook, so other social media, and, and that creates a whole level of, uh, well, uh, emotional upheaval at times. Well, it does, especially if you have a child who has some struggles in um, making forward progress with the tasks of their uh, tasks of adolescence, which are many. And, you know, no one comes to Three Point Center because uh, it's cheaper there. You know, <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> they're looking for a very fine program <laughs> and they're willing to pay for high quality because they need that for their child. You know, I, I hope it's okay that I just speak really bluntly. Well, and of so, course it is, Deborah. You know, yeah. you carry a lot of credence with us and with all our parents. So absolutely, please do. And so they're 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 wanting to be very careful with their with their children, and so one of the things that I talk to parents about. Well, I'll give you an example from my caseload. Please. Um, I had a girl who wanted to find out some information about her birth father. So over the course of a couple years, the family managed to track him down. He was local, and so we wrote a careful letter with a 14-year-old's description of what this individual was interested in. Mm-hmm. And then that resulted in a letter back, and we found that the birth parent was clean and sober now. That birth parent started to text a lot mm-hmm. to the client, and that was a little bit too much. Yeah. So how do you get some of the boundaries in? How much help does that person need to do that? And then it turned out that that birth parent was going to move out of state. So they said, is there a time before I move out of state that we could meet and you could meet your biologic half-sister? Mm-hmm. And the adoptive parents by this point had enough information. They'd set some boundaries. They'd arranged the boundaries that they felt comfortable with that. So we were able to have that meeting. And my client came in and said, they're very nice people, but I got way too much information. And the information that probably I shouldn't have gotten was the Facebook account for my biologic mom, my first mom. Oh, wow. She said, I am just, I have already gone on and I've seen my full brother that, the person I wanted to see because we got split up in foster care, mm-hmm. you know, and now I find it almost irresistible yeah. to reach out. So we were able to get some uh, help with that, you know, with careful discussion with parents. The parent decided that that parent would set up a Facebook page. Mm-hmm. And this is the adoptive mom. Yeah. And then she would set up some guidance around that. That way, you know, it isn't just a situation where the child has to negotiate boundaries herself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so gradually, slowly, they'll get information. But what my 15-year-old wanted, that is my client, his 14, 15-year-old, wanted she wanted to make sure her brother was okay oh wow because they were split up in foster care she also wants to know a little bit about herself she wants some health history he has a couple health issues it's like well how bad does it get what have other people experienced with this yeah but she's trying to form her life story our our, our parents like many adoptive parents a number of them because of uh unfortunate events that have happened to their children previously really have some misgivings and reservations about having that level of contact or a level of contact with the birth family. Um, Knowing every situation is different, are there any general guidelines that you might suggest for for adoptive parents as they manage their own anxiety around it? Sure. A lot of times we're afraid because our children are, are very, very important to us. And we don't want our children to be harmed in any way. And if our child's been maltreated in the past, we don't have, you know, the luxury of a Pollyanna viewpoint. Mm -hmm. 
Right. It could happen again. Or if there have been drugs and alcohol, they certainly don't want something to influence that child further to have that same um, behavior. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, I talk to parents about it's a relationship that you have to put careful boundaries in. And the relationship will progress to the extent that you can build trust and that people become sensitive to each other's needs or respectful of each other's needs and boundaries. And so I was thinking of some stories that maybe I could talk to about today. I've already you know, mentioned one of them, but in a second, I had um, a boy who reached out to his birth parent by Facebook and um, the, the parent reached back and gave some information. And so I became involved, called the birth parent up, the, the first parent. A lot of parents don't like being called birth, birth parents if they've had a stint of parenting. They prefer to be called first parents. So if you know your listeners hear me discussing it that way, that's, I'm trying to be um, sensitive to people who are offended by being called birth parents. Sure. But anyway, back to the story. The first parent said, well, I want my sons to know that they can talk to me about anything. And they could just tell me anything they need to tell their mom. He said, let us be clear about this. You know, your boys have not lived with you now for nine years. Mm -hmm. And your boys call another person mom. And they'll be talking to that mom about very important things or their dad or they might talk to me or another trusted adult. They don't know you that well anymore. I think we need to go back and, you know, kind of review your expectations and mine. Mm -hmm. And the, the reason I put this in is because sometimes people who have been using, they kind of think they can go back to the point where the children first left them Mm -hmm. and just kind of pick up from there. And there needs to be in between work sometimes. And so in this case, I referred the family back to their agency to do some of it. Mm -hmm. I did some of it. And so that's something that parents can always get kind of a, a bead on. And they did find in this case that the first mom kind of got up to speed. She wasn't using anymore. You know, she had been clean and sober for a long time. Wonderful. But when they made some contact with the first dad, they found out that he kept relapsing. Mm -hmm. And so they had more contact with the first mom that was pretty, pretty heavily supervised. Mm -hmm. And when one of the kids did start to have drug alcohol problems, she said, well, I'm the first mom said, I won't be able to uh, visit with you until you get a handle on it because I'm afraid that, that would threaten my sobriety. Wow. And she said, you should, with your genetics, you should get into a program sooner than later. Don't wait. Mm-hmm. You know, so she really lined up and formed a relationship with both parents to reinforce being uh, drug and alcohol free. That's wonderful. And so I, I, I was thinking of that story because it shows progression in relationship. Mm-hmm. This was over about a, a two year period. Yeah. And they actually were going to have the first mom fly in when the boys were approximately 17, 18 mm-hmm. and do a short visit, but not stay with them. Okay. And so I've seen openness work. I've also seen situations where um, people aren't doing well with boundaries and want the kids to meet their needs. And Mm -hmm. so there's had, then there's a retreat that takes place. Like, Mm -hmm. well, you know, we're not able to establish boundaries and hold boundaries. So we'll take a break for a while. Yeah. And, there's nothing wrong with doing that. Yeah. You know, it, 
you kind of think about this type of situation like other situations. Does that person have respect for our family such that they can hold boundaries and know who has decision-making and who doesn't? Are they really looking up for my best, the best for my child? I think that is so important for them to understand the decision-making, just as you said it, that the adoptive parents are the parents and that rests with them. Yes. I had um, one parent who actually was not too keen on having an open adoption, but both her kids got friended on Facebook. Mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> this is happening so often, oh. you know, because people are looking. Yep. And so we, at my suggestion, she called up the bio mom the first mom, and she asked her basically to step up and take on some of the adult roles instead wow. of acting like the new cool teenage best friend. And, um, you know, the first mom did. Oh, wonderful. She responded to that. She didn't get defensive or. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, it worked out well. And, you know, so, you know, it, it's a tricky situation, but. If you can handle it well, and kids get a lot of their questions answered. You know, I, I just made a list here of all kinds of common questions that kids want to know. Please does, share them with us. Does my first mom miss me? Is she all right? Especially if kids have started in a home where there's a lot of drug, alcohol abuse, opioid use. Mm -hmm. Every addict raises a child so that child takes care of them. And there still is that role reversal. Are they doing all right? How's she going to do it without me mm -hmm. if the child's left a little later in childhood? And so they feel comforted if that parent is doing all right. The parent isn't. Then you can lay out which people she could reach out to or he could reach out to who might help them. Is, does my father know about me? You know, a lot of times they don't know if their fathers even know about them. And I would say if there's one group that's left out of the adoption discussion way too much, it's fathers. Mm -hmm. You know, and often I find that fathers have been very involved in making um, plans. And you notice in the examples that I'm giving, you know, there's a discussion of various fathers and their point of view. Do I have birth siblings? Were my parents, first parents married? Why didn't I stay with them? And often we're using very abstract discussions. You know, they wanted someone who could give you what they couldn't give, or they wanted a two-parent family. They wanted more stability. Mm -hmm. Whereas many teens are, who have executive dysfunction, um, that is, you know, they have a hard time generalizing mm -hmm. from specifics uh, or a hard time generalizing from one situation to another. They see details. They can't get the big picture. They have a hard time with categories. They have a hard time with abstraction. You know, those are just some of the uh, elements. But anyway, back to the point. The kids hear these abstract things or she made bad choices. But they need to hear the straight skinny. And sometimes it's like, we, weren't, we didn't have enough food in the refrigerator. Um, we were living in the car and then the car wouldn't start. And we just knew this is it, we can't go any further. Or there was a pickup order. And so we decided it's better just to do the placement ourselves rather than wait till CPS picks you up. You know, so sometimes we get those specifics and those are really helpful. Or one first mom said, I was afraid that if I didn't make an adoption plan, if I just left, then your first father would try to raise you. And he already was hitting one of you. He was hitting me and I knew it was just a matter of time. And so I convinced them that we'd both 
sign papers and I'd stay with them. I signed papers and left in the middle of the night. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a story that's got, you know, a real narrative quality to it that makes sense to a kid. Yeah. Okay. It also gives enough caution to everybody that when we try to get information from their that first dad, maybe we should make sure that he's not violent anymore. You know, mm -hmm. we're gonna watch our P's and Q's and be pretty careful. Other questions. Well, um, where were my grandparents and relatives? Mm -hmm. Why didn't they come and take care of me? Um, or some of them are more emotional. Would my first mom like it if I kept a little distance from my adoptive parents? Does it feel fair to her or fair mm -hmm. to my first dad that I get close to my adoptive parents? And about half the kids I've worked with feel that pressure not to get too close. When I bring up that question to others, about half of them look at me like, what kind of rock did you crawl out of? <laughs> You know, who would think that way? That's terrible. <laughs> Sometimes they wanted, they want their their first um, parents to know what kind of family they're in. Mm -hmm. You know, they, do they know where that where I am? De Deborah, have you have you been asked a question? I'm sure you have. What and how do you typically respond when 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 adoptive parents are worried that kids want to go live with first parents or kind of you know they create this glorified scenario where they're going to make everything okay in my life well that's one reason why you want to get some really specific information yeah because um it's a lot easier to be grandiose or um gussy up a mental picture till you can take it to a prom until, you know, <laughs> when you don't really know these people. You know, one girl didn't know anything much about her first parents. She had some ideas and she saw Lady Gaga and decided she was Lady Gaga's daughter. Well, you know, since she was born in a whole different country, um, it was like, no, we think that you're actually Romani and, you know, maybe you should know something about the Romani people. And the Lady Gaga is not Romani, and uh, so, you know. The facts. We have some information for you. <laughs> it's more specific. But the specific information helps them not to come up with a fairy tale. Yeah. And it also allows them to get a sense of, yeah, your life is kind of hard at times mm -hmm. and frustrating, but there isn't some easy place where you could go and then you wouldn't have any struggle. I mean, just I think of this from the other point of view. When you have hard kids, a lot of parents have this fantasy that they would come down with some illness. And that illness would not be painful. It wouldn't be lifelong, but it would allow them to go to bed, rest, have somebody take care of the kids and bring them meals for a few weeks. <laughs> Yeah, I, just, I, I would, I'm neither going to confirm or deny I've had that fantasy. <laughs> right. And it's, it's actually a popular fantasy. Okay. But when things are hard, we're all looking for, isn't there some place I can lie down beside the road of life and just take a break? Yeah, a little respite. Just a little respite. And there could be some respite the parents could have. But basically, you know, you pretty much have to keep on moving. You might be able to pare down your backpack, but there's no one that's going to carry you around on a stretcher unless you've got unlimited money and resources, which few of us have. Well, and, and you're, this is a wonderful segue to, you know, many of our adoptive parents, many of our, our parents uh, at Three Point Center, they're really exhausted emotionally, financially, they're tired, and they've done everything they can to have to avoid, you know, something like having their child come to a residential treatment center. They love these kids and they've racked their brains trying to figure out how to get them help and to help them. Um, this, is a, this is such a global umbrella question, but what would you say to them, Deborah, to, to kind of regain that momentum, to rekindle that hope, to um, kind of refresh themselves emotionally in regards to their children? Sure. First of all, 
get someone to help you through your grief process. Because many of the parents have a lot of grief. And they have had so much going on just trying to do to keep all the wheels on the bus. They haven't had the opportunity to do their grieving. Mm -hmm. And many parents will think, oh, my goodness, I don't want to start any grieving because, you know, I'm afraid I'll just fall apart. Well, something that that I suggest, and, you know, I've used this for a pretty severe grief experience in my own life, is rent a brain. And so I would rent the well-regulated brain of a psychologist in town who knew nothing about me. And I've been around for a long time, so I needed <laughs> to get somebody I didn't have a connection with. <laughs> and so I go down and talk, you know, his... What we find is if you have somebody whose brain is very steady, mm-hmm. then you'll sync up with their brain firing patterns and they'll hold you steady enough so you can get some of your grief work started. Mm-hmm. And you can get quite a bit completed. And sometimes the various cases I'm working on are just so painful for my clients that it's very helpful to me to have a therapist who takes care of me. Sometimes I just talk the whole hour. They can hardly make an observation. I tell them I pay them good money for this. So, um, I, I, they, they don't seem to always appreciate the fine point of humor on that, but, you know, what can I say? I can be self-entertaining. There you but, go. No, seriously, it really works. And then I use the three hour, four times a week, or four hours, three times a week rule. What we find is our grief or, uh, will run in a wave. Mm-hmm. And we either have like three-hour waves or four-hour waves, where it kind of peaks with an intense emotion and comes down again. Mm-hmm. And then you feel better. Yeah. And so if you take three hours four times a week or four hours three times a week, and just give yourself that time to write, to walk, to do something pleasurable, or be out in nature, being in the rhythm of nature, 60 beats a minute. Mm-hmm. That's that's the rhythm of the womb. Yeah. It's very yeah. helpful. And then your brain will re- gradually take all that stuff that's in active, unprocessed memory and sort it out and put it into processed memory. Mm-hmm. And usually that means your categories need to change. You know, when you have a child living out of home, then you're still the parent. But if somebody asks what you and your children are doing over the holidays, mm-hmm. it, it hurts. Yeah. And so being able to process how am I a mother when my child isn't living with me? Or what does it mean to be the father of a special needs child? Or what's it mean to the other kids? And they come and say, we've spent so much time with this child for the last couple of years. I feel like you haven't been sensitive to my needs. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's a lot of um, recovery that needs to take place when parents um, place a child into a residential care facility recover from the process that's before, during, and then after, because they have to reset themselves as I'm a parent whose child has some very special needs. And so what will these needs be into the future? How will I define myself? There's a concept called ambiguous loss. Mm -hmm. An ambiguous loss means you have a loss that it's hard to quantify. Like, I'm glad I'm a mother, but it's so hard to be a mother of a child who has FASD. Or I'm grateful that I can meet the needs of this child who has heavy trauma. But sometimes I just wish I could get a break from thinking about their trauma, their trauma triggers, and what that means to our family. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and so that ambiguity means that you do really well to have a support group of people who really understand you and can support you in a meaningful way. 
So one of my kids is an adult now, and she has special needs. Mm -hmm. And so I find it very helpful to have friendships where people not only know my story, but they're sensitive to um, the issues of a, a family with a special needs member. And, and so you kind of go through and winnow, winnow through your uh, relationships mm -hmm. and drop some that just aren't supportive of you or, or, you, or your family. And then you encourage development of other relationships. And that's a process. Many people who have adopted um, children tend to be social and have a group that includes some really needy people. Mm -hmm. And almost everybody has to go through and drop off a couple needy friends because they just don't have the bandwidth to meet everybody's needs anymore. And that, that tends not to be uh, a cheerful experience for any of us. <laughs> <laughs> People who are kind of needy and using a lot of emotional resources, they don't tend to be happy about the process. <laughs> and uh, they go kicking and screaming. <laughs> but, you know, dropping a couple bad friends isn't such a bad idea. I'm just talking very openly as, you know, one parent to another. I love it. You can have more balanced relationships into the future. Yeah. And that's what you're looking for, authentic, balanced relationships that are healthy. From your chair and experience, how important is it for that self-care piece for the parents? Well, it's critical because when we're joining with kids, if we don't have regulated brains, mm -hmm. and when I mean regulated brains, it's like steady brain patterns, mm -hmm. then our kids are more upset than comforted when we try to get close to them. Mm -hmm. If we're anticipating their traumatic response to something that we say, then what will begin to happen is that we'll already start running really high cortisol levels. Mm -hmm. And then those high cortisol levels are something that their right cortex understands and receives. As and well it picks as up on it, doesn't it? Nervous system. Yeah. yeah. They see it's a sensory emotional process. They get it on a gut level. They've got an early warning signal like, whoop, 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 they're going, there's something wrong with my parent. And we'll have more behavioral problems. Yep. I didn't say this to guilt any parent, but we've done some research projects looking at getting parents steadier, and the kids will start to get steadier. I'm not saying that's the only variable, but we can see a difference. And so for the parents to regain their steadiness, is really critical. Yep, and and that comes through self-care and 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 at times putting yourself first, and 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 that ties in beautifully with Dr. Porges' polyvagal theory, where the kids are reading the optical muscles and and knowing by our body language just how we're showing up before a word is even said. Yes, I mean they're looking. Do you have welcoming eyes? Do you have a relaxed face? Are your eyebrows arching? Or are they knitting? Right. Are your shoulders directly under your ears, or do you have a good amount of space there? You know, yeah. <laughs> your shoulders down. You know, do you look at them and and have a welcoming look on your face at least most of the time? Are you highly stressed? Yeah. And so a lot of times we have to drop things. I've dropped a lot of activities that were very worthwhile activities, mm -hmm. but. I'm caring too much and I don't have enough margin. Yeah. And so you have to have enough margin. So if something goes kerfluey, then you still have enough left over for your kids and for you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well said. Now, what, one of the current, of course, stressors that we're dealing with, we're all dealing with COVID, dealing with the anxiety and stressors of the day. 
Any, any coaching, Deborah, for parents in, in, in helping their children feel reassured during a time such as this, when it seems to be, you know, every time you turn on the news, there's a riot or a protest, there's COVID issues. Uh, any, any coaching for our parents on, on helping their kids feel safe during these times? Sure. Uh, first of all, um, I come from a, a city where there's been a lot made of the riots in Seattle. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. actually really overblown. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's happening in about a, a, a block or two area. At the worst, it was a six block area. And business went around around it, you know. And so I, I think I would let them know the reason it's in the news, it's very dramatic. There's not a lot that's actually falling apart. Um, one of my adult daughters lives in that general area, and um, we go freely through that area. A lot of this is uh, hype. Yeah. So that's one thing. The the second, you know, I just have to put that in in defense of Seattle. Um, <laughs> I know you look still had beautiful place. The biggest housing boom with the more most families moving into the area over the summer of yeah. any city in the state. So so clearly, people who live here aren't seeing it the way some of the news stations are. Um, it, moving further on, I just I I, I tell kids. COVID is something that you don't have to worry about because we're making a lot of provisions for you. We're wearing masks. People are staying home or else wearing masks. And we're making sure kids are getting very good care. And as a parent, you can say, I will wear masks and I will make sure that I stay away from people who have COVID. You know, I don't think I'm going to get it if I have those precautions. If I do, and I'll take good care of myself medically. Most parents aren't in the highest risk group, okay? So they just need the hype reduced and then let them know that there are a lot of really smart people working on this as a problem and you have some confidence that it will be worked out. We're all pretty tired of Zoom. (laughs) Yes, we are. (laughs) On the other hand, we can still visit with grandparents, aunts, uncles, friends by Zoom. We can wear masks and walk in the park. And let's think of 10 things that we can do with our spare time since we don't have to commute anymore. You know, so <laughs> I try to look on the positives of it. Yeah. You know, that's, that's pretty cool. I haven't had to wear dress pants um, myself for three months, I consider that really positive. I wear jeans and a friend of mine just recently said, why? Sweats will do it. So there you go. So, you know, I, I think that uh, often parents can hold it lightly. I don't think that network news is very good for children to listen to. Yeah. Yeah. What you're saying ties into, you know, our core belief of being playful and keeping things light and optimistic for our kids. Learned optimism is one of the seven resiliency factors. Yeah. And um, I, I don't think that, especially if a child has trauma and anxiety, I don't think having the news on does anybody any favors. Because kids think that stuff is just happening all over the place. You know, when I mention you know, I happen to have pizza at the same area that they're saying, you know, the world is finishing in um, the Seattle's Capitol Hill. Uh, you know, it would be astonishing for people not in our city. But, yeah. you know, it actually, things are actually pretty humdrum around here. So, you know, it often isn't the way it is cast on the news. This is so and, true. And I, and I think talking to kids day to day, what does this really mean, you know, in, in our lives? We're working on things and we're going to make progress with these problems. Well, and, and thankfully, you know, the kids here have seen how we've managed COVID and when we had the outbreak earlier this summer. And as I mentioned, and I shared with the parents and I shared with Deborah, the biggest drama we had were the kids who wanted it but didn't get it. So there's that. <laughs> 
So let, let me, let me uh, as we wrap up here, Deborah, let me, let me switch gears. Can you tell us about your books and where people can get your books? And, and I know, you know, as far as your practice goes, um, you're not taking clients, uh, just kind of taking that a little bit slower. But uh, as, far as, as far as the books you've written, can you tell our parents a little bit about them and how they could procure them? Sure. Uh, the easiest way to get my books is on Amazon. You yeah. know, most of us are getting quite a few things on Amazon these days. Truth, huh? Uh, yes. It's, it's our guilty pleasure, you know, getting <laughs> boxes. But um, attaching an adoption I wrote originally for parents mm -hmm. because I thought if people had age by age, stage by stage, what they could do for kids who were having attachment difficulties, then they get off to a better start. And we didn't have a, a book like that out at the time. Mm -hmm. Then I updated that in 2012, and it still sells widely. Mm -hmm. um, then I wrote the book, Nurturing Adoptions, Creating Resilience After uh, Neglect and Trauma, because I wanted a book that was a guide for child welfare workers and uh, adoption therapists, knowing parents were looking over their shoulders. Mm -hmm. And so um, I actually, when I wrote Attaching an Adoption, I wrote it also knowing that a lot of adoption professionals or foster care professionals didn't know their material either. But this I, is sad I but true. I, I had a choice to write the first book for parents or for professionals at a couple publishers, both interested in one or the other. And I just chose to do the parents first because they're more motivated. It was a good choice. Yeah. And the second went more for professionals. How do you, how do you move kids? What something everybody works on, mm -hmm. you know, with children who have had early trauma, you know, early neglect, malnutrition, changing caregivers. So that is a thick book, but I always put indexes in my books because none of my parents uh, have enough time that they could just like lamp in and read a book. You know, that would yeah. be a, a particular section. This is what I need. Yeah. Then I decided to write a book that had some visuals, but also talked a lot about how do you raise a kid to have better executive functioning as well as better mm -hmm. attachment. And that was... Um, attaching with love, hugs, and joy. Or play. I can't remember what I named the last word. <laughs> we have to look that love up. Love, hugs, and play. Okay, play. Yes. Anyway. That's and it's a very playful book. It also describes play. And then some friends and I got together and did a book of games. For games and activities for attaching with your child. And it's like activities for the whole family, how to play one-on-one -on -one with the child, whatever kids don't know how to play when they come to families. Yeah, well, and, and if I, I, I will tell you, I gave that to my, my son and daughter-in-law when they gave birth to my granddaughter, my only grandchild, just as, hey, here's some things to keep in mind as she ages, games you can play. It's not strictly for adopted children. No. Oh. And we also put some things in there. If your child has some autistic characteristics, this mm -hmm. is how you can adapt that. Where a lot of our kids have sensory sensitivities. This is how you can adapt that game. So that was kind of fun to do. And then the last one that came out the end of 2018 is promoting healthy adoption or attachments, hands-on techniques to use with your clients. And those are for my colleagues who are doing therapy. It's like, how do you work with trauma, attachment, grief loss? What are practical techniques? Yeah. And it includes some information on teens uh, and various problems and how to work with parents who themselves have attachment difficulties. Mm -hmm. So, and then I retired my writing hand. <laughs> so, um, it's, it's been crimped for too long. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we, we are grateful for your writing hand, you know, I, I mean that sincerely. I, I'm so grateful for, 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 if I may use this, and I hope you take it as respectfully as intended, the pioneers in this field clinically who really said, look, this is unique. We just can't generalize 
to these kids. We have to be specific and understand exactly what the process is like for them. And I am so grateful for the work you've done. Uh, again, everything we do up here is a tribute to the work you've already done for us. Thank you, Norm. I think that when we look of it at us as a community, we all play our part. Yeah. We all have our strengths. I had opportunities that were unique. That's not for me to hoard, but that's for me to disseminate. Mm -hmm. You had opportunities that were unique. I mean, your work with Gottman, mm -hmm. your work with adoption to create three points. Mm -hmm. You know, what you and your staff doing, that's a unique opportunity that now you turn into something to disseminate to the community. And I think for all the parents to know, they have unique opportunities, not just to provide for their children, but to give and get from a larger community that cares about them. And we're working, you know, just getting more cohesion in in our community. And I think that we all learn from each other, try to make as much of a contribution as we can, but we're also recipients of the joy of being part of this community. I was delighted to be asked to come join you today because, you know, when I'm talking to parents, I am just so grateful for that opportunity to be able to have a discussion like this. That's from the parents I've known to, you know, the parents that you've invited to be part of this podcast today. Well, thank you, Deborah. I think uh, through what you've shared today, they can get a, you know, kind of a glimpse of the wonderful person I know and uh, that we would all have a Deborah Gray in our lives, I think. Uh, so grateful for you. Thank you for your time today. Thank you for your goodness. And, and, and moms and dads out there, if you have any specific questions about something Deborah shared, please reach out to me and I'm happy to reach out to her and and uh, we'll, get some, we'll get some answers to those questions for you. Deborah, thank you. Uh, many blessings your way. And uh, please continue to stay safe and healthy. Thank you, Norm. Thank you for inviting me today. My best to your parents, your families, and the kids and staff there at Three Point Center. Take good care, my friend. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.